We make decisions every day. While some of them are small, many can have a huge impact on our own lives and those around us. But how often do we stop to think about how we make decisions? Welcome to Deciding Factors, a podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. In each episode, I'll talk to world-class experts and leaders in government, medicine, business, and beyond, who can share their firsthand experiences and explain how they make some of their biggest decisions. We'll give you fresh insights to help you tackle the tough decisions in your professional life. You don't have to look far these days to see that many Americans are skeptical of our political leaders and even our political system. A recent poll showed that only 27% of Americans approve of the job Congress is doing. Take one glance at the news and the animosity both between and within our political parties is immediately evident. Despite our wariness, many of us look for opportunities to participate constructively in the political process. Some of us may even wonder how to make a difference serving directly in roles as public servants. Yet the path to getting involved and becoming leaders ourselves can be difficult to navigate or even find. I can't think of anyone who can speak to those challenges of getting involved in politics and offer advice more than my guest today. John Podesta has been a major player in American politics for nearly 50 years, eventually serving as White House Chief of Staff to President Clinton and later Counselor to President Obama, where he was responsible for coordinating the administration's climate policy and related initiatives. Podesta also chaired Hillary Clinton's campaign for president in 2016. He is the founder and a member of the board of directors for the Center for American Progress, a progressive think tank in Washington, D.C. Listen in as John walks me through the lessons he's learned from his decades of service, the ways in which he's seen our political system and culture change, and the young politicians he sees as the leaders of tomorrow. John, welcome to Deciding Factors. Good to be with you, Eric. So I thought we could start by talking about your career in politics. You worked for several campaigns, first uh, Joseph Duffy for Senate in Connecticut in 1970. Then you worked on a a couple of presidential campaigns, Eugene McCarthy and George McGovern. For our listeners out there who might either be considering getting involved in politics or have kids thinking about getting involved in politics, like why did you choose to go into politics and what did you learn about politics on those early campaigns? Well, I started in the 1968 presidential campaign with Gene McCarthy. That was a a campaign with a purpose and a message, which was to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, I was in college at the time. The public sentiment had turned decidedly negative on the war. The costs uh, were extreme in terms of loss of life and, and, and casualty, and the gains became further and further away. So McCarthy took on uh, an incumbent president of his own party, Lyndon Johnson, and I joined that campaign because I thought the most uh, direct vehicle to end the war in Vietnam was to try to campaign for a candidate who pledged to end it. Likewise, with Joe Duffy, who ran for the Senate in Connecticut in 1970, George McGovern in 1972, I think those experiences were really about changing the direction of the country uh, and seeking leaders who had fundamentally different views from the direction the country was going under under first President Johnson and then President Nixon. Through talking about your career, after you worked on presidential campaigns, you then worked on Capitol Hill in a number of staff roles uh, and ultimately as counselor to Democratic Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle. 
Could you talk a little bit about what being a staffer was like on Capitol Hill, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s and, and how perhaps that culture has changed? Yeah, the culture was actually quite different back then. There was a deep divide. I spent most of my time on Capitol Hill working on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and you had uh, senators leading that committee from Ted Kennedy to Strom Thurmond. So, you know, from uh, the most liberal part of the Democratic Party to the most conservative part of the Republican Party. We would scrap around. We would often disagree. But I think the culture was one in which the, the process was respected uh, I had very good friends on the other side of the aisle. We socialized together. Our families grew up together. I was pretty young then. And we were friends with uh, Republicans even cons- and very conservative Republicans indeed. Uh, that's really changed. I think people don't talk to each other much uh, across the aisle. It's like 100% combat all the time. There are certain pockets that remain uh, ones where because of leadership on a certain committee or another, people still try to find honest compromises. But for the most part, we've become much more tribal. The culmination of that was what we saw really on January 6th with a president who was uh, trying to challenge the legitimate results of a presidential election. And then the division between people who were concern for our democracy and those who basically were willing to go along with uh, what was ultimately a big lie. One theory out there is that Newt Gingrich, when he became Speaker of the House in 95, launched this culture of tribalism and negative tone we see so much of today. Do you buy that? Well, you know, I think it's a bit of both. I think that people feel that the system is sort of rigged against ordinary people. Uh, it's the kind of rise of uh, this professionalization of uh, influence peddling in Washington. But I also think that Gingrich in particular practiced a politics of personal destruction that had impact. I mean, he became Speaker of the House. I think he was uh, challenging a different style uh, of leadership in the Republican Party at the time. Gingrich saw the path to power as being, you know, in essence, a scorched earth path. Uh, And he practiced that and was successful. And I think as time went on, people copied it. And I I don't uh, think that uh, Democrats were immune from that. They saw it work and (laughs) they they knew that you had to, uh, in essence, fight fire with fire. So the Uh, personal attacks became more the norm. Leaders going into their counterparts' states and districts and campaigning against them, which would never have happened in, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s became the norm. It bred a sort of tribalism that I think was uh, reflected in the way not just politics was conducted, but it became kind of really amplified uh, by the effect of social media. It's maybe cliche-ish to say it, but it became a culture war between two very different uh, views of of how democracy should be conducted, how people should interrelate with each other to try to find uh, common solutions. And so, you know, it's it's um, I think sad to see for the 
for the country, but it, it is what it is. When you're the chief of staff to a president, and, and probably when you were working as counselor to President Obama, and I think working on climate change, you know, part of your job is to tee up tough decisions for the president. In deciding factors, we we like to examine decisions um, and decision making. What was your process for helping your principals make tough decisions? Uh, and what did you learn from all those various people about how to make a good decision? Well, you, you kind of have to know your principal, first off, how they absorb information, whether they like getting more of the pros and cons of any decision on paper or they want to hear it you know, directly, uh, how they want to uh, see debate happen in a decision-making context. So I felt like I knew uh, President Clinton quite well. I had known him for a really long time. Uh, you mentioned a campaign I worked with. We worked together on a campaign in 1970 and, and had known him since then. Uh, I got to know him better in my first job in the White House when I was the staff secretary. It's a kind of, uh, I didn't even know what the job was when I accepted the offer to do it, but it's the person who manages all the paper that goes to and from the president. And you kind of get to know the president like a historian gets to know someone because you're seeing a lot of his thoughts expressed in writing on paper that's going back and forth. It's a little different now in the when mu- much more of the information is transmitted electronically. Uh, and so you, your staff, you know, they're the principal. They got elected. They're making the decision. So you have to uh, adjust your style of how you're presenting and what you're presenting to the president based on what what is going to work for them. Having said that, you know, particularly in those two cases, they were people that wanted dissent. They welcomed it. They wanted to hear opposing positions. They would probe and scrap around with you uh, and and push back uh, on arguments. You know, you had to come extremely well prepared, but that was, you know, the norm was to be well prepared. But then they wouldn't always accept whatever, even consensus staff advice, they would push back hard on it. Uh, And you have to be able to stand your ground if you thought uh, that they wanted to go off in a direction that that you thought was a mistake. So, you know, it was a a lively exchange of ideas. They approached topics a little bit differently. I described Bill Clinton as a horizontal thinker. He knows something about everything, (laughs) you know, And, and he could bring to bear knowledge from things that you would think have no relationship to each other and bring them uh, front and center in trying to work through a hard problem. President Obama, in, in, in my view, was more of a kind of classically trained thinker in depth. He was uh, deductive in the way he approached problems. He was more like a well-prepared lawyer uh, trying to get to the right decision, the right brief. Uh, but, you know, they're both exceedingly talented and smart. Uh, and they, But they just kind of approached uh, decision-making slightly differently. And I think one needed to adjust to that. You know, again, they both, they both wanted dissent. I think that's the most important thing that I learned from those experiences is that the best decisions are made when you created an environment where people can say you're wrong, uh, and uh, you say it respectful, respectfully, because they're the president of the United States, but you can tell them that you think they're wrong, 
And they will honor that, actually, rather than resist it. The reason you run for this job is because you think you're going to be able to make a difference. In most presidents' cases, I think Trump is a bit of an exception. I'm going to come back to Trump. But I think this this was true of both President Bush's, it's true of Clinton, it's true of Obama. They had a sense of where they thought the country was and where it needed to go, why they were the right person to take it on that journey. Uh, And they were willing to push and utilize uh, their power uh, to move the country along. I I strongly disagreed with many of the decisions that uh, President George W. Bush made, but I thought he was um, engaged in a process of trying uh, to do what was right from for the country from his perspective. And I think his team, uh, likewise, was built to try to do that. I remain quite friendly with, with um, Josh Bolton, his chief of staff, with Steve Hadley, his national security advisor, uh, to this day. The difference with Trump is that he had no regard for what the boundaries were of, um, I think it was more, uh, in his case, what was sort of satisfying to him at the moment and was, and felt unconstrained by the law and the constitution. And I think that's pretty dangerous. And, uh, it was an exercise of power that we're still trying to unpack, you know, particularly, Uh, his refusal to admit defeat in the election. What have you seen the most successful leaders do? What do they have in common in their approach to maximizing their impact while they're in office? Well, I would say rule number one is keep your word. (laughs) That might sound, you know, trite, but you're going to be around for a while particularly on Capitol Hill, it's kind of a repeat play kind of place. You're going to have to go back to the same people and try to find uh, ways uh, to move things forward, to get along, to find, sometimes find compromise, sometimes to, to oppose. It doesn't matter what your ideology is, whether you're conservative, whether you're progressive, etc. If people trust you as being honest, being transparent, telling what you think, uh, telling where you have some give, where you where where your red lines are, and you stick with that. Uh, I think you build a reputation for honesty, and that is really really critical. Uh, the other thing I would say is uh, do your homework. Uh, you know, if you look at the elected officials, those people who don't try, you know, in the first week in office. Uh, uh, you know, before they've really figured out where the bathroom is to make a big splash often are, you know, uh, flashes in the pan, as it were. The people who are diligent, who study, who uh, maybe uh, hold back a little bit as they are learning the ropes are usually the people who are going to be more successful over time. I'm curious your thoughts on cynicism in politics. You know, what amount of cynicism is helpful versus hurtful? I wonder what your advice would be on on calibrating the use of cynicism in politics. 
I'm viewed as a tough fighter and a partisan, but I never got cynical. And I've been doing this for 50 years, you know, so I never got cynical. I always thought that politics could make a difference, that policy made a difference. The reward is when you get to see the fruits of that. And in real people, in, in people coming up t- to you on the rope line and said, you know, I took advantage of the, of the Family Medical Leave Act that you signed, or people who were able to uh, move from welfare to work and they had a job and they had uh, the dignity of, of work. I mean, those, those experiences are really reinforcing and rewarding. And you, you just have to kind of enjoy them. And I think they keep you from being too cynical. You know, having said that, you also have to play tough. I mean, it's not, it's as someone famous once said, it's not beanbag. <laughs> you know, it is, uh, politics is a kind of rough and tumble uh, sport and experience. You know, you have to be willing to be engaged in that uh, sort of combat, but never giving up on the values, the reason, the people that led you to want to try to do public service. I guess the the classic example of cynicism would be changing one's position in order to placate constituents. What would be your advice to someone considering changing their position in order to win and stay in office? I think everybody has a little bit of their own compass on that. I think there are things that when you're checking what you really believe in at the door and you're and you're you've gone to the point where you can't recognize why you kind of started in the enterprise. You've gone too far. But there's ways to kind of actually respect and listen. And there are places where in order to get to the destination, you might try a different tack. Uh, let me give you a, a specific example I'm engaged with right now. You know, there, there are a lot of people who in the climate world who 15 years ago thought that there was only one approach. You either needed to price carbon or create a kind of a cap and trade system where you're overall reducing carbon emissions through a scheme like that. The cap and trade provision passed the House in 2009, failed in the Senate. Biden really, you know, I don't know whether he had a strong view back then, but he's really uh, reformulated uh, the whole policy with a whole different strategy, which is about um, investments, creating the right kind of standards, uh, and creating uh, uh, opportunity and a push towards, you know, investing in the things we want, clean energy, uh, electric transportation, etc. And, you know, I, I think there are people who would say, that we should have stuck with the old paradigm, but it wasn't working. <laughs> it didn't get anything done. And, you know, pe- there are a few people who are holdouts on the Congress today who uh, suggest that, the you know, what Biden has proposed doesn't make sense. Uh, what we really need is a carbon tax, but they don't have any idea of how you enact a carbon tax. <laughs> so, you know, I think you have to, make judgments about uh, what you need to do to kind of make the sale with your constituents, 
but most importantly, to make the sale in terms of getting policy done. And I think that's an exercise in realism, in kind of practical policy making. And I don't, I don't think that's cynical as much as it is a way of getting to your goal. Definitely resonates. I, I really want to ask you about media. And here I'm really talking about the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. In terms of their political reporting, it seems like they haven't, they've adapted somewhat to you know, the changes of the last 10 years, but they've been slow. And my, uh, my, my hypothesis is that uh, the so-called objective reporting on the one hand, on the other hand, doesn't work anymore. And it doesn't add a lot of value and what they could really add a lot of value with, especially in their political reporting, would be context and analysis and the story behind the story. They don't report most of the time on why different actors are saying and doing different things. They report, um, you know, objectively, quote unquote, on on the facts. But that misses the story. I feel like a lot of the time. Do you do you agree, or or am I being uh, overwrought in my hypothesis? No, I think that's that's pretty accurate. Uh, it really hit a trough, you know, maybe four or five years ago. It's better, but they're always battling for the latest trends. They're victims themselves of the real uh, distortion that social media has thrown around the dialogue now. I think the worst uh, example of that, of course, is Facebook, which um, is in the business of pushing people towards extraordinary extremes, including conspiracies. We see that with COVID, not just politics, uh, climate change, other things. But then the mainstream media kind of chases that. I think it's gotten a little better um, and more reflective as the larger news organization have kind of stabilized, stopped. Uh, hemorrhaging money and been able to add some talent to their reporting pools. But it's an ongoing challenge to democracy for sure. John, um, last question I thought I'd ask you, are there any younger generation political leaders uh, in the country that you know we should have our eye on that you think are particularly talented? Sure. Look, I think there's um, a whole crop of people who were elected in 2018 that came into and ran for office Many with some experience in uh, from the executive branch or from uh, city or, or state government that were inspired to kind of uh, get engaged because they saw the country really going in a dangerous direction. I'm thinking of people like Melissa Slotkin uh, in Michigan, Andy Kim in New Jersey, uh, Mike Levin in California. Deb Haaland is now the Secretary of Interior, so out of Congress. That class, if you will, was one of my favorites. And I think they will, over time, really have as profound an effect as a class on politics in the country as the class of 74, the water, the so-called Watergate babies, I had uh, going back to, you know, in the in the post-Nixon election. But, you know, I think there's a lot of talent out there. And there's a lot of talent, particularly like in municipal government, in cities. They have a different, more ground level appreciation for having to get something done. <laughs> you know, the one the one thing about Congress is 
Uh, and I think one of the reasons that Congress is held in such low esteem is they don't necessarily have to work, <laughs> you know, and sometimes they don't, and they it, they can take forever. And we're experiencing that right now with the struggle to get both the bipartisan infrastructure bill done and the reconciliation package. Both are vital for the country. But when you're the mayor and you've got to make sure the garbage gets picked up, you got a much more ground level uh, feel for that. So I think that that's another place to look for future leaders. Well, John, uh, this was the highlight of my month. Thank you so much for being on Deciding Factors. Uh, a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you coming on. Good to be with you, Eric. That was John Podesta, former White House Chief of Staff to President Clinton and Counselor to President Obama, among countless other roles. My biggest takeaway from our interview is that despite how tough an enterprise politics can be, it's possible for someone like John to remain optimistic and even disavow cynicism. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new episode of Deciding Factors featuring another one of GLG's network members. Every day, GLG facilitates conversations with experts across nearly every industry and geography, helping our clients with insight that leads to true clarity. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Thanks for listening.